You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2009. Today's episode is titled, The Work of the Lord. What does the phrase, the work of the Lord, mean? For many, the phrase refers to church planting, missions, evangelism, pastoral care, preaching, and teaching. Work deemed to be the purview of the institutional church At first glance, this definition seems to be the sense of the phrase in 1 Corinthians 16.10, where the term is used in reference to Paul and Timothy. In that text, however, Paul issued an imperative to the Corinthian believers to give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Sin is the major impediment that blocks us from finding and fulfilling our work assignments. Christ is the remedy for sin. Everyone is blessed when they obey God, therefore both workers and employers are blessed when workers find and fulfill their individual life purposes. This is the work of the Lord. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message, The Work of the Lord. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. I want to just have a conversation with you, and I want this to be interactive, so hopefully you will uh, you'll engage me. And here, here's the deal. If you don't engage with me, then I'll engage with you. That's the deal. Okay. Well, let's just talk for a second about what Scripture might have to say about the work of the Lord. And I want to read you a little text here um, out of 1 Corinthians 16 and give you a little context. Um, Paul visited the city of Corinth during his second missionary journey. You all remember that? He spent a, he spent a year and a half there in that city. Uh, Corinth was a very decadent city. It was uh, not too far from Athens in Greece. And it was a city that was um, um, very, uh, it was a corrupt city. It was a city where there's a lot of paganism that went on. And he did work there and, and, and found many, many people that, to accept Christ and sowed into those people for a year and a half. Had a lot of opposition there. On his third journey, his first place that he goes to is Ephesus. And at Ephesus, he finds some incredible opportunities. And he, I think he intended to go to Corinth, but he got, he got sidetracked at Ephesus. And he got sidetracked because he found, he found 12 people there that were hungry for the kingdom of God. And so he started discipling them. He spent two years discipling those people. So what he did while he was in Corinth is he, or Ephesus, he wrote a letter to Corinth to talk to these people about about what's going on with him and why he's delayed in coming to see them. In fact, as far as we know, he never got back to Corinth. He only visited Corinth at one time, even though we have two epistles that he wrote to that city. So in his um, first epistle, the last chapter, I'm just going to read you a few verses to kind of set this up. He says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. For I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So this suggests it's the spring of the year, and he's in Ephesus. And this may be slightly before he knew what God was going to do. But he was beginning to see something. He says this, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me. Now, how, how would you know that a wide door of effective service would be open to you? What would be one of the signs that you might look at and say, Aha, this is an opportunity. 
Things are falling into place. Well, let me share with you what Paul noted as an indicator that he had an open door. Okay? For a wide open door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We don't think about that, do we? Adversaries as being an indicator that you're doing the work of the Lord. Uh, in March of this year, I went to Canada for an eight-day trip. Um, and I trained uh, seven people to teach my Strategic Life Alignment Seminar, which we're going to do here uh, next month. That's a seminar on how to find what God has called you to do. If you believe that God created you with intent and purpose, then it's your job to discern what it is he's called you to do and to go do it. And so that's what that seminar is about, what, to help you understand a biblical approach to doing that. Now, I find most people think they know what to do, but when they go through the seminar, they walk out realizing they had almost no clue what to do. Because it's largely untaught in Christianity today. At least that's been my experience. You can talk to this man right here, okay? And you can talk to your pastor, because both of them have been through the seminar. And I think it's safe to say that both of them have had their lives changed through that. And it wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of the seminar. It was because of the truth that was taught in the seminar and the way they embraced that truth. You know, somebody can give you truth, but if you don't embrace it, it's not going to do much. You've got to embrace it. They embraced it. And uh, Hank went through a period of um, real struggle and really wrestling with the material in that seminar for, I guess, probably a year. But the other side of that was he had clarity like he had never had about who he was and what God had called him to do. So I was in Canada back in March, and I was training seven people to, to be able to teach this <laughs> seminar. And the training process to, to be able to do that, so I call it a certification process, it's about a nine-month process, so this was the end of the process, and I was up there for over a week working with them, training with them, and one of the part of the process is we do a seminar together. So we did that. We had a delightful week. We had much fruit, incredible breakthroughs. We had much resistance up there. We saw a lot of spiritual resistance, spiritual warfare going on, because the enemy does not like truth. He will oppose truth. You know, you stop and think about it. Who is dangerous to the enemy? You know, the average person walking in the door of your church is probably not too dangerous to the enemy because they're largely living for themselves. Their understanding of how to walk with God is probably, you know, mediocre at best. There's no real intent, intense focus on how to walk out the reality of their faith day to day. So... They're not very dangerous, so the enemy's not going to take his limited resources, and the enemy does have limited resources. Have you ever thought about that? The enemy does not have infinite resources. He's limited in what he's got. So if you're the enemy, and you're kind of trying to deploy your resources effectively, you're not going to waste resources on somebody that's, you know, that's basically shooting themselves in the foot. Somebody that's basically off course and not really seeking God. Why waste resources on that? Find somebody that's going to be dangerous. Find somebody that's really going to do me damage. And now I want to shoot them. Who is that person? Well, that person that's going to do damage to the enemy is the one who is seeking to discern the will of God for their life and then seeking to do it. That person is dangerous. 
So the enemy is always going to be resisting. So that's why it's one of the signs. It's one of the signs that God has opened up the door of favor when you see resistance. So I saw resistance in Canada. In fact, I've been going to Canada for the last uh, about a year and a half. I've been up there four times, and every time something has happened. For example, I went up there last July. I'm at the airport, and I have my computer bag, a different bag from the one I have today, and it's strung over my, my uh, shoulder. Got a shoulder deal. And um, I'm walking around, and all of a sudden, the, the latch on it comes loose, and the bag drops straight to the ground. Okay? Well, I didn't think a lot about that. That's happened to me a lot of times. So I, I just picked up the bag, re- reconnected, put it on my shoulder, and I'm just walking around, and all of a sudden, this voice in my head says, check your computer. You know when you hear that, you know, it, it's, you may be in trouble. <laughs> now, you have to understand something about me. I am paperless. Even though I graduated from high school in the 60s, I am paperless. Okay? I, I, don't, I don't carry a bunch of paper. This is, this is unusual for me to carry this paper. You know, the only reason I carried this paper is I didn't, open, didn't start my computer, which I normally would do. But I didn't have hardly any paper. All I had was my computer. Cause, and I'm getting ready to go up on this, this week-long trip. I'm going to do two seminars and do some consulting up there. And all that I need is in my computer. And here I am at the airport. I'm getting ready to get on the airplane in about 30 minutes. And I hear this voice, check your computer. So I pull out the computer, open it up. I turn it on. And what do you think happened? It wouldn't boot up. I'm thinking, uh-oh. Pull out your telephone, call your IT guy, help. So he says, pull out the hard drive, wait for a few minutes, put it back in, see if it'll boot up. So I did that, still didn't work, would not boot up. So here I am getting on this airplane with a dead computer. Okay. Now, by the grace of God, right before I left, one of the things I normally do is I normally copy all my critical files to a thumb drive, which I did, put it on a thumb drive. So when I got out there, I'm scrambling. Do I buy a computer? Do I borrow a computer? What do I do? Finally, my client was able to borrow a computer for me, and so I found I had this little dinky laptop that I was able to use to get through the week and got it done. While I'm up there, <clears throat> when I get up there, I had shipped the products for the seminar up there by FedEx. Now, I've been using FedEx for 25 years, and I've never had a problem with FedEx ever. Well, I get up there, and I had shipped three boxes, and two of them arrived. One of them, they can't find. They have no idea where it is. So I don't have all my seminar materials. I got a dead computer. I don't have all my seminar materials. Okay, then we start the seminar. And there's a guy in the seminar that his, his, his employer had basically said, look, I'm, I'll pay for everybody to go to this seminar. You guys need to discover what you're called to do. This will really help you. So my employer paid for everyone to go. And so he's in there. He's kind of, you know, he's not too excited about being there. But I guess he felt like he needed to be there because the employer was, you know, encouraging him to go. So he's sitting over there, you know, listening to me. And and he starts twitching and starts grumbling. Now, my wife's in the back of the room. And my wife is a very good intercessor. And she's very tuned into the spirit world. And she immediately recognized what was going on. What do you think was going on? You had demonic oppression going on in this man. He was manifesting right there in the seminar. And so, you know, this went on for probably two or three hours. And there were 
Fortunately, it was my wife and another lady in the back of the room, their intercessors, they started praying. They literally prayed him out of the room. After about two hours, he bolted. He's out of there. So, so we got this. We got a dead computer, no seminar materials, and, and a de- demonic manifestation. So that was that trip back in July. Okay. Oh, by the way, when I got back home and I was going to call Dell with the, the, to, to tell him the error message I was getting, you know, I plugged it back in, I turned it on. What do you think happened to my computer? Popped right back online. Now, what was that? Hmm? Anybody had that happen to you? Hmm? So, that was the first trip. Now, I, I went back in February, and I was gone for a week. And my wife took me to the airport in our SUV, and that night she went to her life group meeting. <clears throat> and while she's at her life group meeting, somebody decides to vandalize our SUV. Now, we have never had our car broken into ever, anywhere, in any context. But now I'm on a trip to Canada, and here comes a vandal hitting our car. Then, about the middle of the week, my mother, who's been a widow now for about a year, she gets a, a letter from Charles Schwab where she has an account, and, and she doesn't understand the letter. All she sees is a word on this page that it said, and I forgot the exact word, it's like, uh, like terminate. Okay? And so she's freaking out. She, you know, she's, she's already overwhelmed being a widow anyway. Then she gets a letter about her money and it says terminate on here or suspend or something like that. And she's thinking that all of her money's gone. And so she's trying to reach me in Canada. So I've got, I got a nervous mother. I got a, a car that's been vandalized up here. I'm saying, what is going on? Then the last trip, March. We're up there for eight days. Great training time. And when I, Get on the airplane to coming back home. We're feeling really good about what the Lord's doing. Like a great door has been opened to us. I, as soon as we land at DFW, I turn on my cell phone, and my cell phone lights up. I mean, I have a text message. I got voicemail, and my daughter's calling me all at the same time. Well, it turns out my house is flooded. And it, look, get this. I grew up in the mechanical trades. My dad was a mechanical contractor here in town. And so I understand water heaters. I understand that they don't last long, that they leak. And you can be sure they're going to fail. In this house we built, I did not want to put the water heaters in the attic, but I had no choice. There was no other place to do it. So if I wanted to live with my wife in peace, there was no other place to do it. So I've got this big pan, six-inch deep pan with a drain on it, so that when that starts leaking, it's going to show up in the courtyard. I'll see it and know there's a problem. Well, what I didn't know was the plumber that installed that heater put a manual, well, he left the manual taped to the back of the heater. You know what comes to the manufacturer? They tape a, a manual on there. I know you don't need a manual, but some people do. Okay. Now, when it was installed, it's installed up close to the wall, and I don't know the manual's there. The only way I could have known it would be I'd have to go and reach behind and kind of feel for it and, and find it. Well, I didn't do that. I didn't know it was there. Well, over time, the glue on the tape, it uh, came loose, and the manual drops down in the pan. So when the water heater starts, starts leaking, it starts slowly, and the water starts draining out of the pan. Well, gradually, it gets faster and faster and faster, and eventually, that manual starts to float. And when it starts to float, it then floats over to the drain and clogs up the drain, and now the pan fills up and overflows. Comparing the water bill from February to the water bill from March, the difference is 8,000 gallons. 
So it appears that about 8,000 gallons went through my house while I was in Canada. So this is my adventures in going to Canada. So I would say, like the Apostle Paul said, there's been a great and effective door open for me. I've had incredible fruit, incredible receptivity to what I do, both as a consultant and as a trainer in biblical principles of business, and I have great resistance. You see how the resistance ties in? I mean, you know, I was sharing this with some of my friends here when I got back, what I just shared with you, and, you know, their comment to me was, maybe you shouldn't go to Canada anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good place for you to go. But I don't think that's what Paul would have done. Paul, Paul said this. He said, for a wide door for effectual service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So that's one of the keys that we know we're doing the work of the Lord. It's when there are adversaries. Now, I'm not talking about us shooting ourselves in the foot and being our own problem. I'm talking, well, we are truly doing what we're supposed to be doing, and there's resistance. That's an indicator. Now, going on. Now, if Timothy comes... See that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the work, the Lord's work, as I am also. You see, Paul is talking about how Timothy is doing the same work that he's doing. They're doing the Lord's work. Now, what is the work that Paul and Timothy did? What did they do? They spread the gospel. Hmm? They spread the gospel. They went and planted a lot of churches, didn't they? They would go into a community, they would usually go to the synagogue, if it had a synagogue, and they would declare, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's, that was the message. What you guys read in the scripture, which the scripture to them was the Old Testament, what's in the scripture is talking about the one to come, the Messiah, that's Christ. He's the one. And he had to suffer and die on the cross. They, they were demonstrating all this in the Old Testament, I'm, I'm sure Hugh is, Stu has done a a lot of that for you guys, showing you from the Old Testament how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So that's what he did. And in the process, he, people came to know the Lord, and they formed communities that we call churches. So that's what he and, and, and Timothy did. So now, is that the work of the Lord? Okay. Now, is that the work of the Lord or just a work of the Lord? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read you the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. Therefore, my beloved brethren. Now, before I read this verse, let me set this up. If you go back to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, you will find Paul uh, admonishing these believers, these professing believers. And what he's saying to them is, you guys need to grow up. You guys are not growing up. You guys are still living like carnal Christians. He says, I wish I could feed you meat, but I can't. I have to feed you milk because you haven't grown up. So he's talking to baby Christians. If you want to know what spiritual baby food is, 1 Corinthians is spiritual baby food. You can see the topics that are covered in that book, and you can see what are some of the basics of the faith. If you're Working with a young believer, 1 Corinthians is a great book to get ideas from because this is spiritual baby food. This is milk. So these are very immature believers. So even though they are immature believers, notice what he says to these very immature, carnal believers. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So he's telling these spiritual babies, these infants in Christ, to do the work of the Lord just like he does, just like Timothy does. Now, does that mean they're supposed to go plant churches? Is that what they're supposed to do? So what are they supposed to do? What's the work of the Lord to them? What's the work of the Lord to these carnal Christians? Evangelism? Okay. Personal growth? Okay. Could it be more than that? Could we expand that a little bit? There is an interesting word in, in Scripture that's translated work. It's the Greek word ergon. Does anybody here know Greek? Anybody study Greek? You know a little bit of Greek? You know what the word ergon means? Okay, ergon refers to work of all types. All kinds of works. It doesn't, you know, carpentry work, you know, the, the trades, engineering work, you know, sales work, artistic work, merchants, you know, teaching, whatever it is, all kinds of work. It just encompasses everything. It's a very broad term for work. Well, that's the word that's used here in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16. The work of the Lord, it's the ergon of the Lord. Now, let me just show you some other places where this, this concept is used. This is, a, this is in uh, Jeremiah 48, verse 10. Now, this obviously is the Old Testament, so it's not in Greek. But the concept is here, and I think it's interesting to see this. This is a reference to Moab. Now, you remember Moab uh, tried to oppose Israel when they were on their journey to the Promised Land. And they're the ones that hired Balaam. Remember that? Okay. Balaam, and they hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. So, in Jeremiah 48, God is talking about, okay, you Moabites, you oppose me, here comes the judgment. And that is reality. We oppose God, we will get judged. And so, he is going to judge them by using the Israelites. So notice what he says about the Israelites and about them as being instruments of judgment for Moab. He says, a curse is on him who is lax doing the Lord's work. Now, what is the Lord's work? A curse on him who keeps his sword from bloodshed. Whoa. Lord's work just got expanded to military activity? That doesn't fit our paradigm, does it? Nobody mentioned that. I didn't hear that from anybody. Military activity, bloodshed, what's this? Now, please, I'm not advocating we all put on swords and go out and start killing each other. No, what I'm saying is we've got to get a, a broader, more biblical perspective on what the Lord's work is. We tend to think the Lord's work is typically evangelism and ethics. Okay? And we got a little bit beyond that. But basically, that's pretty well where most people view it. That's how they see it. And they see what Paul and Timothy did. Well, that's, that's the Lord's work, too, because they're church planning. But for those of us that don't do what they do, we live over in the workplace, well, more it's just evangelism and ethics for us. Well, I want to stretch you a little bit and let Scripture stretch you to say, wait a minute, maybe it's more than I realize. Maybe there's more to it than I realize. Because here he's telling me that the Lord's work is exercising the will of God. You see, if God has directed us 
to go and do something to destroy a city, we're supposed to destroy the city. I know that just doesn't fit our paradigms today, but just read some of the text. Read 1 Samuel 15. Who remembers, who remembers what 1 Samuel 15 is? Where Samuel goes to Saul and says, The Lord has said, go and kill all the Amalekites. Yep. Now listen, kill them all. Men, women, children. Now that violates our conscience. And we, what, what? Killing innocent children? Innocent women? Now this is what, whenever you get a directive from God, we've got to be willing to obey it, even if it, it doesn't fit our paradigm. And we have to know that even though it doesn't fit our paradigm, in it God is still just and righteous. We just don't understand it yet. We've got to let God be God. We keep trying to judge God. Have you noticed that? We keep trying to decide, well, God, I don't know if you're really doing this right. You, you real, That doesn't look like something you ought to be doing. Isn't that what we want to say? Because we want to be God. We've got to let God be God. So part of, part of the stretch here is, is can I get it that God is going to direct me? And that direction may not look like what I think it ought to look like. In fact, it's probably going to not. If I, if I, if I have learned anything about the Lord, and I have been a Christian since, um, I was 11 years old, I'm 62. Okay? So that's 51 years, best I can tell. Does that sound like 51 years? Okay? So for half a century, I have been a Christian. I have, I, I was saved right here at First Baptist Richardson in 1957. I have been serious about the Lord for all but maybe a couple of years in high school when I was really goofy. I know none of y'all have been goofy, but I got a little goofy for a while in high school. But I, I recovered, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I was asking questions. I wanted to know about the Lord. And what I discovered is my Sunday school teacher at the, at the Baptist church couldn't answer my questions. Have you, any of y'all run into that? I mean, you start asking some hard questions, and you can't find people that can ask, answer them. Well, I kept asking those questions, and I did find some people that knew the Word of God enough, well enough, to be able to answer the questions. And so I, I, I drew me into deeper study of the Word, and it was a tremendous journey for me. So I've been, I've been walking you know, in the faith a long time, and, and I can tell you that over the years, the one thing that's really clear to me about the way God works is that I can never figure it out. It, it's never what I think it's going to be. Every time I think I get a picture about what He's going to do, He surprises me. I keep asking myself, why do I think I could ever figure this out? It, I'm never going to be able to figure it out because he is just so beyond me. So I've got to be willing to let him be God. Okay, so we've got to say, okay, the work of the Lord, there's obviously he's going to give us some assignments that just don't make a lot of sense, and military may be part of it. All right, how about this text? This is uh, from Hebrews 1, verse 10. It says this, In the beginning, O Lord... You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the ergon work of your hands. You hear that? This is the writer to the epistle of Hebrews, talking about creation, and he's referring to the work of the hands of the Lord, this same ergon, this same word. Now ergon has got a sense of a very tangible creation. We, we're living in a physical world that God made. He made all of this. He made, he made the, the, the rules of electricity and magnetism. 
that hold our molecules together. You know, if those rules weren't the way they are, you know, nothing would hold together. If you've ever studied physics, and that's my background is physics, it's a fascinating thing to see how precisely tuned the universe is. It's, it's an amazing, you say, how in the world could this possibly work the way it works? I mean, just think about this. Just a simple thing. The atmosphere is 80% nitrogen. Now, why is that a blessing to us? Anybody having a clue? Does anybody remember the Apollo 1 spaceship, 1967? Hey, remember what happened to that one? When you have 100% oxygen and you have any kind of spark, it's instant explosion. So without the, uh, without the nitrogen in the atmosphere, if we had 100% oxygen, we couldn't light a match. Think about that. That is the blessing of God. You know, I remember when I first started studying things like that, and I would say, gee, what's a, what a waste, 80% nitrogen, what a waste, you know? And then I began to see, well, gee, if we didn't have that, what would we have? It's, it's part of the, the gift of God in how he's made his creation. Everything works well together. Have you noticed this? Did you like your breakfast? Was it good? What? Well, isn't it nice that your food tastes good? Isn't that, isn't that a gift? I mean, why, why would we expect food to taste good? It's a gift of God. You see, God's fine-tuned this universe where what we need to eat is here. And we have an affinity for it, and it tastes good, and it nourishes us. gives us the strength we need to live the life he's called us to live. You see, that's, that's the universe we live in. It's a physical creation that he values, he cares about. And so when we, we use the word ergon, we're talking about the fact that God values work, physical work. So if God values physical work, it's important to him, could the work of the Lord be done in the physical realm? Could be things like science, engineering, project management, sales. Could that be valuable to God? Now, you guys are looking at me like, you know, are you, you kind of goofy guy, you know? Yeah? I mean, can, can we go there? Okay, well, let me, let me really meddle with you a little bit. Tell me, why are you saved? What is the purpose of salvation? Why are you saved? To know the Father, okay? That's the definition of eternal life, is to know in the Father, Okay? Forgiveness of sins. Glorify God. Okay? So we can go to heaven instead of hell. That's our fire insurance policy. All right? Well, let me build on that. All of you familiar with Ephesians 2? Probably heard many, many sermons on Ephesians 2. Everybody knows what it says. Right? What's it say? For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. Whatever faith you have is a gift. It's a gift of God. And it's not by works, as you pointed out. So that no one can boast. And then he tells us why God saves us. For. Does anybody remember what he says next? For. We are God's workmanship. Who, who here has made anything? Okay, what have you made? Fences? 
Okay, so they re- when you make a when you when you build a house, it reflects you, your workmanship, your skill, your ability, your creativity, you know, your sense of how to do things well, etc. Reflects you. Well, we are God's workmanship. It reflects Him. We reflect Him. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What's next? To do good ergon. You hear that? Here's that word ergon again. Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, there's a plan. How many of you have built a building? Okay, when you build a building, what do you start with? What's the first thing you do before you can build a building? Foundation. Okay, what's the first thing you physically do? Before you can do the foundation, what do you do? You have to have a plan. We call them plans and specs, referring to specifications. If you don't have a plan and specs, you don't know what to do. You don't, you don't have a clue what to do. The plans and specs are the directive. The directive from whoever commissioned that building so you know what to do. We have been made by God. We have been commissioned and he has a plan and spec for our lives. And if we don't get to that plan and spec and understand it, we don't know how to live our lives. Is that clear? Does everybody see that? Does anybody have a clue what their plan and spec is? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a creator. Didn't he make the plan and spec for your life? Yes. Okay, has anybody got a clue what God's plan and spec for your life is? Yes. Okay, so how did you, what, what do you know about your life? See, so you, you've spent some time trying to, to look and discover the plan and the spec and to study it. Now, those of you, how many of you have built a complicated building or been part of that? I mean, I grew up, my, we were mechanical contractors, and we built many, many buildings. In fact, I was driving over here today, this morning, and a building that I was part of constructing over 30 years ago was being torn down, that old HP building. You know, we did a mechanical in that building back in the 70s. It's being torn down. I thought, well, gee, I'm getting old enough now that what I built is getting torn down. So, well, but, you know, when those plans came out on that building... It's a big, thick set of plans. Big, thick spec book. Okay? And you got to sit down and absorb all that to try to figure out what you've got to do, when you've got to do it, and how you've got to do it. Well, that's a picture for life. You know, our lives, we're not just simple things. We just get up every day and do whatever we want to do. We've got to begin to study out the plan and specs of God for our lives. Now, how do we do that? How do we go about that? How do we discover that? Well, see, that's what the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar is about. It's designed to help you discover the plan and specifications from God for your life. And if you don't intentionally search that out, you will probably not discover it. Proverbs say this. This is another one of those things where you, you listen to this and you say, I don't know that I like the way God made the rules to be. But he's God. He says this. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings. And that's who we are, by the way. Kings are rulers. The word there is ruler. It's the glory of rulers to search it out. 
It's our job to search out the destiny that God has put into each one of us. You have a destiny. You count. God made you for a reason. You are not here to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. That's not why you're here. Now, that's how most of us live. Jesus didn't live that way. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Now, who lives like that? None of us lives like that. That's a level of living that we, at, at best, we, we have only heard about. Some of us have never even heard about it. But it's a level of obedience to the Father that is so intense that when you have to wrestle with it, you may sweat drops of blood, which is what he did in the garden. Who hears sweat drops of blood wrestling with the will of God for their lives? None of us has. I haven't found anybody has so far. I haven't. You know, which tells me how far away I am from doing it well. But we have got to keep working at discerning the plan and specification of God for our lives because we have been saved not just for fire insurance, not just to be a witness to others. We have been saved to do the works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Please hear me. The works don't save you. The works are the expression of gratitude for what God has done for us. The works follow the grace. The works do not precede the grace. They follow the grace. They evidence the grace. I was uh, in, a, in a conference about a year ago in eschatology, which is the study of, of end times. And there's a whole bunch of pastors in this room. And a couple of people like me, they're, I don't know what you call me, people like me, just, just people that are trying to walk with God. But I'm not a pastor in the traditional sense. Okay, I do pastoral work. Do you understand the difference? I have a gifting to be a pastor, but I don't have an official office of pastor. So anyway, we're in this meeting, and we get down to some of these basic things, and, and I just can't resist. You know, there's something to me the devil gets in me. I don't know what the deal is. But i got to poke at these pastors a little bit. You know, And so I said to them, uh, somebody was um, talking about how salvation connects to eschatology and all that. And I said, what's the purpose of salvation? Now, here's this room of pastors. They're all looking at me like, like a sheep looking at a new gate. Yeah? Or a cow looking at a new gate here in Texas, rather. You know, like, what? And finally, one of them says, give me the Westminster Confession. What was that? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Remember that? That's the Westminster Confession. Very, very traditional response. So then I said, how do you do that? Now! He's frozen. He doesn't have a clue. You, because most, most of us think, including our church leaders, that Christianity is about going to heaven. We define salvation in terms of, of time and space. Time, eternal life, space, heaven, a place. That's how we define it. How did Jesus define eternal life? John 17, 3. Eternal life is that you may know you, the Father. You see, eternal life is a relationship. And as we relate to our Creator, we get our orders, our directives, 
our plans and specs from our Creator. Oh, that's what you've called me to do. You want me to go and you want me to kill those Amalekites. I'm on it. I'm on it. You see, that's how directive we need to be. That God needs to direct our lives down to where we work, how we work. Somebody said they hate they hated their work. I want to challenge you. If you hate your work, you need to really look hard about, okay, am I doing what God has created me to do? Am I doing the works that he's ordained that I do? If you're not, then why are you doing that? Why are you doing something? And if you are doing what you're doing for money, may I suggest that is the wrong reason. If you're living where you're living because of money, it's the wrong reason. If you're driving the car you're driving because of money, it's the wrong reason. If you married whoever you married because of money, it's the wrong reason. Now, God redeems. I'm not encouraging divorce in any any stretch. But you need to think about why you have made the decisions you have made. And most of us have made our decisions because of money. One other quick story. Um, I was speaking at a conference about four years ago, and I was talking about biblical principles of management. And I, I started sharing using um, an example of, of, of mortgage bankers. Is there, nobody here is a mortgage banker, I don't think. Okay, So I was just showing how mortgage bankers do not use biblical principles to guide their clients. So I walked through this, this illustration, you know, and I showed them what a biblical model would look like for mortgage banking versus the secular model. And they're all kind of looking at me like, wow, nobody's ever done that. At the end of my session, I'm, I'm kind of packing up, and this guy walks up to me, and he is literally white. Okay? Now, he's an Anglo. He is really white, white. Okay? And, he, I, you know, he introduced himself. He says, I, I saw what you said about mortgage banking, and I'm a mortgage banker. I said, really? He said, yeah, and you're absolutely correct. And I realized I have been absolutely misleading people. I have been using secular principles to help people make decisions for where they should live. And I was wrong. He said, what do I do? Now, what's the answer to a question like that? You guys know. Repent. Hey, when God reveals to you an error, repent. It's time to change. Line up with God. That's how we live life is lined up with God. And see, that's what I want to challenge you to today, is you guys have been called to do the work of the Lord. And that work of the Lord includes what you do in the workplace. He has a place for you, an assignment for you, where you're going to bring glory and honor to Him if you do it His way. If you discern His plan and His specifications, it's kind of like seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The kingdom of God is like the plan, the, the specifications are righteousness, the principles that we would use. If you discern that for your life, your specific life, that's how you bring glory to God. And that's why we're saved. First and foremost, secondarily, we go to heaven. And by, by the way, as we do all this, we are light and salt. People see Jesus in us. People are drawn to Jesus in us. And, and we become ethical and we evangelize and all the other things happen when we get the order right and we seek first the kingdom and do the Lord's work. So may the Lord give us grace to do that today. It's all, it's all about motives. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? If God has assigned you, as he assigned Daniel, 
to live in captivity all of his life and serve all these pagan kings, you know, yeah, you need, you need to learn how to get content with that assignment. But if you have taken on an assignment because of money, okay, or some other reason that has nothing to do with God, then you're probably, the discomfort that you're feeling is probably the Holy Spirit saying, hey, will you wake up? I have a plan for you that's a whole lot better than your plan for yourself. Every bit of resistance doesn't mean you're in the wrong job. Look at the heart. What is God trying to do? My wife uh, runs a Christian private school. She's been a first grade teacher for years. And finally they, they said, we want you to move out of the classroom and become a, a full-time administrator. The first two years she did that, she was really struggling. Because it just was so unnatural. She didn't really feel comfortable. She hadn't done it before. It was, she was being surprised every day. All this stuff is going on. But I kept talking to her. I said, look, I see the call of God on this. You have been prepared for this. You're ready for this. This is promotion. And with it is a stretch. You're learning new skills. You're developing your skills. Well, now she's three years into it. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, the growth that's happened. So, yeah, that's exactly what, what, what he's saying. Is sometimes we're put into positions that are uncomfortable, but God has, has us there to train us and stretch us. You see, I think this is where we, we don't understand the game. Now, tell me, if you were a pastor... You know, would you dream of starting, you know, any session with anybody, whether you're speaking in public or you're having a private session, you would start everything in prayer, wouldn't you? Now, why would we treat the workplace any different? You know, we treat the workplace like it's, uh, like it has nothing to do with spiritual reality. In fact, have you noticed that, you know, when you come into a, what we call a church building, I hate to call it church because it's not a church. It's just a building. But when you come into what we call a church building, how people talk differently, have you noticed that? Okay. Have you ever been at lunch and and have your pastor walk up to the table and everybody the conversation just changes? You ever notice that? Well, see, these are signs of how disconnected we are with the plans and specs. Okay, we don't understand. Workplace is a spiritual place. God made it. It's a holy place. He created everything about it. He created you to work where he's assigned you to work, to do what he's assigned you to do. It is a spiritual activity. It needs to be started in prayer every day. And throughout the day, you need to continually be praying at whatever comes along because the enemy is going to shoot at you if you're doing what you're called to do. Well, how do we fight the enemy? We have the armor, and, and in addition to the armor, we have, remember, prayer. He says, be alert. You know, the enemy is, he's a roaring lion. He's looking to devour us. And the more we line up with God, the more attacks we're going to have in the spirit. We have got to learn to be people of prayer in the workplace. Does that speak to anybody? I mean, this is what I, I run into this all the time. You know, why is it we are so eager to pray in a church context, but we won't pray in a business context? Because I think that's a sign of how disconnected we are with how God works. Well, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these precious men, for their hunger and thirst for you. I ask that you would give them revelation today of your specific plan for their lives, your purpose, the destiny that you have on them. Father, you've created everyone in this room for a reason, and it's valuable to you. That's why we exist. So, Lord, grant us the grace. Grant us the grace, Lord, today at a new level to walk out and discover your plan and purpose, and to do it, 
to your praise and your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.